the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast. This is a show where I speak to leaders, experts, innovators and game changers to look at how we can improve your driving school and hopefully make you an even more awesome driving instructor. As always, I am your splendid host, Terry Cook, and I'm delighted to be here, but even more delighted that you have chosen to listen, because today we have another awesome show for you. I am joined by Liz Box of the RAC Foundation, and we're talking about how instructors can better incorporate road safety into their lessons and, you know, potentially around the social media as well. So we're talking about things like the GDE matrix and we're talking about Copilot, which is a new project from Liz and James Evans and how that's applicable, how it could be applicable for driving instructors in the future. But we've also got a bonus feat at the end of this episode because I recently released a premium exclusive with Lee Jowett based on the GDE matrix. And it seemed to tie in really nicely with this episode. So I've taken a big chunk of that and included that as a bit of a bonus at the end of the episode. So make sure you hang about for that bonus treat at the end. But just before we dive in, I want to take a moment to ask you the big favour to make sure that you click subscribe and share. By subscribing, not only are you making sure this podcast drops straight into your feed whenever I release a new episode, but you're also helping me grow the show. So make sure you go and click subscribe. And if you're feeling in a particularly good mood, make sure you share this episode as well, whether that's on your WhatsApp groups or your local association, social media, wherever you want to do it, I would greatly appreciate it. But for now, let's get stuck into the show. And today on the Instructor Podcast, I am joined by the wonderful Liz Box. How are we doing, Liz? Oh, very good. Thanks, Terry. How are you? Uh, all the better for seeing your smiley face. <laughs> I'm delighted to have you on the show because uh, you were actually back on the first ever Meganar back in August of this year. And we got a lot of lovely feedback from you about your presentation, and I really enjoyed it. And we got a lot of people requesting that I get you back on the podcast properly to dive into you know, a couple of those topics a bit more. So first of all, thank you for being on the Megana. And second of all, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. I am going to kick off with the question I ask everyone that comes on this show, which is the, uh, the the tagline for the show is that I speak to experts, leaders, innovators, and game changers. So I'm just wondering which one or ones of those you fall into, expert, innovator, leader, game changer? Well, that's a nice list of options there, isn't it? So uh, interesting question. So I guess with regards to road safety and young driver safety, I'd say I fall into the the expert category. Um, and I think that's probably because it's a big part of what you aim to become when you you um, conduct a PhD in any particular subject. So you're kind of becoming one of those few people that understand a lot about one very small subject. So I, I guess that would be my answer. However, I would say with my work at the RAC Foundation and Copilot that being a game changer also comes into play a little bit. So at the RAC Foundation, we've been striving to inform and change the landscape in a, in a number of different areas, most recently in the space about encouraging government to establish a, a road safety investigation branch. Um, at Copilot, what we've recognised there is that a gap in the current landscape for really evidence-based educational interventions that are renewed and iterated over time. So it's an exciting time to be involved in a, a real agile startup. Um, and it's the opportunity, I suppose, to act as a bit of a disruptor uh, to the sector. I like it. Game changer. I'm always like it when someone says game changer. I think it's uh, it's a good sign. Um, 
I do want to talk a little bit more, more about Copilot uh, later on, but I want to ask you initially about the the RAC Foundation because when I think of RAC, I think of um, you know the breakdown recovery service. So, can you just tell us a little bit more about the RAC Foundation and your role in it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's one of those things we do have to explain a lot to people because, as you say, most people go, "Oh, breakdown organisation." But the RAC Foundation, we're an independent charity. And we were established back in the 1990s. And in the late 1990s, um, we were established when the Royal Automobile Club essentially sold the RAC breakdown service. And they put aside a lump sum of money to carry on doing public policy and research work in, in, in the transport space. So we look at road safety, environment, economy and mobility issues. We're quite a small charity. There's there's only seven of us there. But my particular role is around research development. So that is commissioning research from academics or consultants, uh, writing our, our own research in-house. And we also have a team of analysts to do a lot of number crunching and to really kind of understand what's happening in the transport space and how we can contribute a independent viewpoint. So I guess we see ourselves as a bit of a translator. So we sit between you know, research and government policy. And we try and translate those research findings into something that people can readily um, pick up and use and in, in their own decision making. Are you almost uh, putting things forward to government that you would like to see made into policy? Yes, yes, we do do that. Um, we will, uh, for instance, we've done work in the past, quite a long time in the past now, but looking at um, mobile phone distraction and vehicles, um, running simulator research and then saying, well, actually, this is the impact it has on distraction. How does that impact in terms of what we should be seeing in terms of the law? Uh, we've also recently commissioned uh, Nottingham University to do some research for us on automated vehicles and really understanding how do people take over and hand over control in vehicles, um, level three vehicles where the vehicle might be driving for a while and then you might have to take back control and how much time do you need and how can you train people to to take that that role on better so what we try and do as we're a small charity we have limited funds we try and work with as many different partners as we can to make the best use of our our limited resources and um, but we also try and find those areas that nobody else is necessarily looking at at the moment um but are really important or it might be an area that it's difficult for a government agency to look at but as an independent body we're able to to look at, into it and then publish those findings uh, broadly i don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole but the the autom- oh, i can never say this word the autonomous driving aspect i'm i'm, I'm just keen to ask you one question on that because i was talking to my dad recently about uh, specifically his cruise control and he just went on this huge rant about anything technological in cars and and i did point out to him that fred flintstone probably had the same attitude when they told him he could stop using his feet to make the car go but i suppose what would your response be to anyone that just had that immediate shutdown of anything added on technological that takes away control from us what would your response be to those people I think we're going through a really interesting transition and and I think we're going to get some of that from members of the public as well. So we've had vehicle technology change for a long time, but a lot of it has been changes in the vehicle that as users we haven't really become aware of. Increasingly, we're getting more ADAS, so advanced driver assistance systems coming in, which are supporting, you know, keeping you within the lane. And, and so that's kind of introducing all of us slowly to kind of what's to come, I suppose. But I think there's a real risk of members of the public maybe not quite sure what the technology does or having a bad experience with it and turning it off because we know a lot of these technologies should make us safer drivers because it helps us 
do things that are sometimes a little bit beyond our human capabilities to see things or react as quickly. Um, so I think there's a bit of a a job to do in making sure people are aware of the technologies, what they can do, how how they can be best used, and and actually improving people's confidence about using them. I, I think that's really important going forwards. Oh, that, that makes sense, and. Uh... Yeah, my dad didn't have the best knowledge of what was what. But I think I want to ask you one more question just around the, the REC Foundation side of it and, and what you do. I'm just curious a little bit as to what drew you into this role. You know, what is, is the keenness around sort of the road safety and that side of stuff? Yeah, so I've been at the foundation now for 17 years, so a, a long old time. And um, before that, I was working in local authority. So I, I came out of university with a geography degree and I thought I'm going to go into the town planning I'm interested in people and and how people use spaces and then I realized that actually transport planning was the place where there was a real skills gap it was kind of a bit of an aging profession they really needed new people in so um, I went into a graduate program uh, did a master's in transport planning and worked in local authority for a few years Um, and then the opportunity at the foundation as a research development manager came up and I was just really interested in the strategic development of policy in in transport which was all about what the foundation was doing so that's kind of why I moved into that national policy space but I think actually my experience working at a local level was really important because you really understand kind of how decisions get made what the processes are what the challenges are so then when you're starting to think of things at a national level you have a lot of empathy actually with what's going on uh, on the ground and how difficult some of those decisions can be to be made so yeah ultimately I've just been interested in human geography and people and then I've gone on to to study uh, for my PhD transport psychology so sort of taking that to it it's a nth degree if you like on, on on that front and all that's you know finally culminated in you appearing on the Mega now and the instructor podcast and you know is that clearly the exactly, highlight the now. pinnacle <laughs> yes um <laughs> But I want to touch back on the Meganar actually for a moment because one thing in that, I mean, there were lots of things that caught my attention, but one thing that really stood out for me was you kept referring to driving instructors as coaches and coaching sessions and one-to-one coaching, which coaching has been in our industry for a long time now, but there is still a lot of resistance towards it. There are still a lot of driving instructors that still have that what i call like a, an 80s mindset of you know get in my car and i'm going to tell you what to do and you will listen you know wrap the knuckles of a metal ruler sort of type thing so i'm just wondering what how you see that instructor's role is coaching important why is it important yeah absolutely and i think at the mechano i sort of built a lot of that uh content around you know what is the instructor's vital role in all of this and that was very much informed by some of the research I'd seen and the work I've been doing and, and different kind of models of kind of how we will act. Because I think often we tend to focus on if, if road safety, we tend to go, well, what's that individual personally doing? What's their personality? What's their attitudes? And of course, that influences their behaviours. But a lot of the research now is telling us it's even more important, particularly for young people, about the social environment that they're within, because they are making those decisions or they're encouraged or discouraged based on the people around them. So I think with driving instructors, you're the ones that are immediately the coach in the car um, on a regular basis for a reasonable period of of time. So can actually have that that important effect. So in, in the webinar, I talked about there being kind of three key areas that I could see being that really important role for instructors. So first, it's important to recognize that instructors are that independent trusted advisor to the student but also to parents and guardians and um, I spoke about 
Uh, in the US, they have a graduated driver licensing there, which I'm sure your listeners will be very well aware of. But what was interesting is as part of that process, they have often delivered interventions with parents and when driving instructors actually delivered those interventions with parents saying here's a parent teen agreement that you can come to with your with your um young person to agree what the first few months your solo driving experience is going to look like it was much more effective when that was delivered by driving instructors than any other public agency because the parents kind of saw them as as trusted advisors about what was important so i think that's important to bear in mind um Also, I think driving instructors can provide that support for developing cognitive skills. So we know that young people learn the manual process of learning to drive really, really very quickly. But it's the cognitive skills that takes longer. So that's hazard perception and and kind of those those thought processes. Um, So I think as much as instructors can promote the development of these skills, the better, whether that's promoting them to when you're sitting in the passenger seat. Can you do a bit of that hazard uh, perception work? Um, can you use some more online tools? That That's a really important um, focus. And then I think finally, instructors provide that teaching that's really difficult to get by other means. So you're able to go through those really challenging aspects of learning that students won't get by private practice. Um, and you're more likely to act, act as a coach because parents are much more likely to be very instructive about, okay, start breaking, start turning left. Whereas what we want instructors to do is you know, depending on what stage people are at, obviously, if they're right at the beginning, it's very different. But later on, being able to sit back and let uh, students make their own choices and coach them through that rather than being too instructive. So I think instructors are really well placed to do that. And, um, you know, many instructors will be familiar with the goals for driving education framework, the kind of um, Hataka matrix. And so it's those higher order skills that instructors can help with. So dealing with social pressure and the like, whereas parents are much more likely to focus on those those basic vehicle control skills. So I think those three things together, to me, seems to be the vital role that instructors can play. I think I had a conversation with a student recently. They'd asked me about mobile phones, and I was able to relay a couple of, or a bit of information I found out recently. So it was um, the two things we were mentioning was that using the, um, what's called the hands-free mobile phone is effectively the same as, you know, holding one, except... You've obviously got both hands on the wheel, potentially using hand three. And the other thing is that it affects you for up to four to five minutes afterwards. Now, that was a stat I didn't know, but I relayed that to the, the student. And they came back and said to me, well, does that mean I can't have a conversation with someone in the car, like their, their passenger? And that led to a really interesting conversation for us about, well, how are you going to manage that? And he's like, well, when I go around and around about, I'm going to tell them to shut up. And it was really interesting. So they kind of the the things you're almost referring to a little bit, those conversations about what Mm -hmm. are you going to do with this after your driving test? Yeah, absolutely. I think the mobile phone point is is a really interesting discussion because it automatically, as you say, leads to, well, I'm distracted by loads of things in the car. What's the difference, particularly when I'm talking to a passenger? And as as they rightly identify, the passenger will identify you've come to a tricky junction and will generally be quiet for a little bit whilst you negotiate that, or you can at least ask them to. Whereas when you're obviously on the phone, your mind is in a different place. The person doesn't is not aware of your local surroundings. So it's it's a very, very different thing. And, and that's a great that you've had the opportunity to kind of talk through some of that. So it, all that is building up to post-test driving, isn't it? And I think that's a big thing. Do you think, you know, from, from the work you do, do you think that across the board, so I'm talking government, I'm talking driving instructors, I'm talking parents, I'm talking drivers, do you think across the board there's too much focus on passing a driving test? 
when we kind of look at the research in this whole area, it, it kind of tells us what the risks are and kind of how to mitigate those. And I think the system we currently have in place focuses very much on car control skills. It focuses on can you do those manoeuvres? And of course, that's really important. But as we've already spoken about, young people learn those manual skills really quickly. Like as older people, if we'd have gone to start learning from scratch now, we'd find that so much more difficult than they can find it. So the the real risks for, for young people is often post-test once they've kind of physically learned to, to, to drive a car. And, you know, we don't have a licensing process in place at the moment that's phased in any way. Um, you know, the key risks for young people are their age and their experience. So if they don't have enough experience, that's problematic. The younger they are, the harder they're going to find it to, to manage their impulses. You know, there's been a huge amount of work done over the last 20 years on, on, on brain development. So, and we know that the, the, the adult brain is not generally fully formed until 25. So young people have got developing brains and that particularly affects their, their frontal lobe, which is responsible for that managing uh, difficult situations. And, and they're just not really set up to, to do that at that stage. Obviously, there's individual variation, but that that's kind of where we are. So it does sometimes feel like we don't really have... Um, the measures in place we need for the brains that young people actually have rather than the ones that we kind of hope that they might have. So yeah, that, that is a bit problematic. You do. Um, let's say I give you a magic wand and, and you can make the changes that you want to, to, to get to where we want to be. What, what changes would you make across the board? Okay. So th there's quite a lot of opportunity and options here, which is great. And one of the key things is, is there's a huge amount of research being done on this throughout the world. And I don't think we need any more research, actually. We just need to put some of these things in place. So let's talk about licensing. So graduated driver licensing components are important. So what we find is that means having sort of minimum learning periods for 12 months. And ideally, what you'd be wanting people to do is to get about two hours of practice every week over a 12-month period. They'd experience all of the different conditions. Um, and that doesn't have to be paid for uh, practice it can be private practice as well because we obviously need to think about the affordability of this so um you know I, I think when I've spoken to young people um in focus groups they very much feel that oh it's all down to the individual you know some individuals can learn in 12 months some can learn in six weeks and to a certain extent they are sort of right because young people will some young people will be better at learning the physical control skills of driving than others but the importance of getting all of that mileage under their belt, regardless if they've picked up the physical control skills quickly, because can they actually identify what other people are doing on the road? Can they see those latent hazards? So we know that uh, younger drivers, when you put them into simulators, that when you look at their eye um, movements, that they're much more kind of in the centre of the screen. They're not kind of looking far left, far right, using their mirrors as well as any other experienced driver. And they also might not identify that, okay, well, that's a delivery van. That might mean that there's a delivery man that might pop out from the side. They're just not, they haven't had the experience. And also it's, it's harder for them at their stage of development to do that. So I think that that all leads to having some period of, of learning to drive that's consistent across that whole group. Um, it, it, it needs a population-based approach. It's not just particular individuals we need to pick out here. Um, and then the post-licensure, we know that um, when young people are in vehicles with their peers, they're four times more likely to be involved in a collision. So they having passengers increases the risk exponentially immediately after passing the test, which is why graduated driver licensing typically says no passengers at night because that that's a sort of protective measure whilst they're developing their experience. So I would say, given it's very unlikely that we're going to get any sort of 
licensing change in, in, in Great Britain anytime soon, whether we can start giving the message to um, students that those first few months after you've passed your test, you're, you're still bedding in your skills and experience. Really, what it would be beneficial to do is only take one passenger during the day and yourself as an individual, try not to drive really late at night. So after 12 o'clock, but don't drive with any passengers at night. And that kind of helps to sort of stage that experience and, and help them develop that experience they need to, to stay safe. So I think there's changes on licensure. And then there's other things that we can essentially ask of of young people to consider and think about i mean i think immediately once you've passed your test what vehicle are people driving in we know that if you can have a vehicle that's under 10 years old it's going to be more likely to have some of the safety equipment in it that's going to keep you um the most safe as possible under six years old if possible but obviously um you know affordability concerns come on board here but that message of of, of getting the best vehicle you can for your budget that's available and then having telematics insurance, I mean, often for young people, it's often not possible to get any other form of insurance anyway. So they're always um, bounced into that market because it's so expensive to get other insurance. But the, the value of it is it almost provides that coach in the car after you've passed your test. Once you haven't got your driving instructor or your friends or family or, or parent next to you, because it's monitoring what's your speed like, what's your harsh acceleration and braking like. And some of these systems, if they identify too many red flags they will actually call the young person and have a brief intervention with a um, behavioral psychologist to talk through what behaviors they're displaying how they can change them so it kind of provides that monitoring really early on and actually I've always thought in a way can help young people themselves saying oh you know I can't do that I've got the black box in the car it's going to cost me a fortune or whatever it, it kind of can be supportive as well so it, licensure but there's kind of things that we can do around that space if that's not possible at the moment. The um the black box thing I didn't know that about the the intervention with the the phone call I think that's brilliant if that's being done but the um I want to ask you on that slightly because like you said then uh, I, I can't do that because I've got my black box and we see the stickers on cars on the bumper stickers saying um yeah I don't like doing this speed either but I've got a black box or whatever it is a bumper sticker says so do you think potentially there's there's a that problem there that some people might get the black box and use that as I just need to get this to get my insurance down then when it's done off I go there, there is a risk and I think looking at the the data it's pretty common for young drivers to move on to a different insurance policy within the first one to two years sometimes they stay for two years but then other offers become competitive and then they don't need to have that that in the in the car. So that is a potentially a problem. But in a way, you've kind of dealt with the most risky periods, that sort of first six to 12 months on solo licensure is, is where the real risks lie whilst you're still getting older, one, and two, getting more experience. So overall, it's probably not too problematic that they move out at one to two year point, better to keep people for longer. But um, the kind of key value, I would say, has already been had. How much of the problem that young drivers face is dealing with other bad drivers on the road? Um, and what I mean by that in particular is, you know, I'm on the road every day as a driving instructor. I can be out 10, 12 hours sometimes, and I just see it all the time. And now I'm I'm used to it. It's like I, I expect people to do stupid stuff. But a young driver or someone that just passed their test, as you mentioned, you use the word experience a lot there. You know, they've maybe only got 30 to 60 hours worth of driving when they pass the test. They're not used to that. So how much of the bad driving of others actually impairs the the new drivers? Yeah, that's a really 
interesting question because we're often focusing on almost the deficits of the young driver in a lot of the research studies rather than kind of looking about the deficits of everybody else and how that's affecting things. I, I, I suppose the way in which that's generally been dealt with is almost this is why you need to have really good hazard perception awareness because anything can happen on the road. You might well know the road you you might travel down it every day but something different might happen in that environment and can you see those cues of what's going to happen you know is it is it bin day is it likely to have the bin uh, bin lorry around the corner that you're going to have to suddenly break for because other people were overtaking or you know what potentially is happening so you're right there's a whole load of stuff that can happen and that can be other road users that can be you know a whole host of things animals running out whatever on on the road network but what young drivers need to be able to do is to identify those hazards and react to them quickly so you know there's still an element of at that past stage depending how long they've been driving for which i think is this is why it's important they get that 12 months of experience because then they're going to be much less concerned about car control and they're probably doing it automatically at that stage but if young people are passing after I don't know, three months potentially, they're probably still, even though they can drive, they're probably still thinking about where their feet are. Um, it's not automatic yet. And therefore they're going to find it much harder to kind of look out the window and actually see see what's happening. Um, so yeah, we we have to prepare them for the reality of, of other road users and, and the things that they will do. Well, this is the conversations we can be having during lessons. You know, we mentioned the phone, you mentioned the the passengers, the nighttime driving, the dealing with other road users. It's all the conversations that we as instructors can be having. I'm going to have a slight mini rant, actually, because um, it was a couple of years ago, I had a student fail pretty much leaving the driving test centre because it stopped slightly over the, the stop line at the traffic lights. It was actually going into the cycle box. So yeah, justifiable fail, you know, they'd gone over the stop line halfway into the bike box. When we drove home, we saw four cars doing the same thing. And that's incredibly frustrating for that learner because they're they're learning. They just failed for this thing, but they know as soon as they pass, they could go and do it for 200 times in a row and never get pulled. So I'm just wondering, actually, in your research, is that anything you hear from learners and complaining about other road users, or is that not something you've come across? No, that's not something I've come across directly, but there has been quite a bit of research done on understanding how parental uh, driving behaviour affects um, their their children's behaviour. And as you would expect, it is correlated and um, how and not only how they drive, but kind of what decisions they might make about drink driving and the like. It's kind of very socially linked. So you're right to say that we can teach young people all of the skills and how they should be doing things properly. But immediately after they finish training, or even if they happen to have passed that test and they go out and see everybody else doing it, well, they're going to start following the social norm after a while in any case. So um, we we shouldn't underestimate how important everyday life is to people. As you were saying, I, I find this in the education space where I've been working with my researchers, we often think well, we're going to go in and we're going to give this really good intervention to these people. And after that, I'm sure they're going to do all these great things. Well, the thing is, you've gone in once for an hour. And then immediately afterwards, they've had a chat to their mates about something who's doing something different. They've gone out on the road and they've seen people doing something else. And we have to be realistic about how much influence we can have over the effect everybody else so i suppose overall this this points to the importance of those kind of high level 
public awareness campaigns that kind of starts to put the downward pressure on social norms so that more people are doing the right thing. So as you say, it then makes it a much easier environment for younger drivers to come into because other people are doing what they should do. And they're not feeling like, oh, gosh, I've got to keep up with the speed of the traffic, even though the speed of the traffic is above the the, the speed limit. You know, that's not a, a great position at all for people to come into. And um, we need to put that downward pressure on everybody else. I um yeah, I agree. And I think that again, I go back to what I said before. We have those conversations, it's all gonna build towards, but I feel that you're targeting the right group. We're targeting that young demographic or you know, the new driver demographic. Cause I'm I really am of the belief that if we can work on those guys and we can in- improve road safety or the standard of driving on the roads by five percent in this generation, then the next generation we improve it by five percent, and the next it's gradually gonna increase mm-hmm. and it's almost uh, maybe this is wrong, but it's almost ignoring the current road user and saying, look, you, you're going to have to follow the laws. If you get pulled, you're getting done. We're putting our attention on these people. Because I also feel like this generation, and I'm going slightly off topic, but I feel like this current youthful generation, sort of 17 to, to 25, is the most compassionate generation I've come across, is the most caring, is the most considerate. I know that when I've had some health issues over the past few years, the people that I've contacted and said, I'm, I can't do lessons this week. The younger they are, the more forgiving they've been. They've been, yeah, yeah take your time, Terry. Do what you need to do. The ones that I've been teaching are a bit older have been a bit more, not mean, but, you know, less compassionate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, is that something you can go with? If we can just focus on this current generation coming through, that's only going to build for the better. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good idea. And I think given given the risks faced by this group it's really important that we we focus on this group and help keep themselves safe as well as others on the road safe that share the road with them um so that's really important i, I think they were saying also that obviously with the changes in the highway code that happened last year and obviously children at school have bikeability style training and i think they were saying that actually it was really important the sort of pester power of young people when they were saying to their parents well hold on that's not we what we were taught at school and um, so that, that kind of learning can work from that way upwards as well, because they're much more likely to take on board those those new things that are coming through and remember them. Whereas older people have, you know, it was years ago since they took the driving test. There has been changes since then. Not many people sit up at night and w- read the highway code, maybe unless they work in the sector. But um, it's really hard to get those messages out. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to to, to focus on you know, this generation and what they can do um, going forwards. And as I said, given what we know in the research about the role of parents, one day they're going to be parents and hopefully they'll be influencing their children in in, in a positive way. I mean, I must admit, I mentioned my dad before, but I'm I'm teaching my nephew at the minute. And quite often when I go around and see my dad, he's, oh, so you said this to Jack, can I ask you about this? And he'll ask me about it. And then he'll come back a few weeks later and he'll say, I tried that thing you said, and that's working better. So yeah, it does work. You're right. I want to I want to roll back a little bit though, because earlier on you mentioned uh, the GDE matrix, the goals for driver education, and I want to talk about instructors specifically for a second. I appreciate you may not be able to to answer this directly, but I put a poll out recently on my Facebook page, and it was asking um, basically how familiar driving instructors are with the GDE matrix. And 40% of instructors, now keep in mind, this isn't all 40,000 instructors, but it was a good number. Um, 40% had either never heard of it or had heard of it, but had no idea what it was. And only 22% said they felt like they had a full knowledge and understanding. So I'm just wondering from someone in your position, 
looking at instructors that are saying that, does that concern you all? Or I mean, it is interesting to know that. I mean, what I would say is uh, the GDE matrix, I mean, that was published back in 2002, so over 20 years ago now. So I guess it's understandable if people haven't come across it. I don't know if it's included in, in current training, um, but I think when we look at some of these models, sometimes it can feel a bit theoretical maybe to people that are practically delivering. But I think that one actually, given we still refer to it and it is 20 years old, it has kind of stood the test of time. And what I think it's really helpful for is really breaking down what are those skills that we need for, for actually being able to control a vehicle and learning to drive. But also once you've got that basic vehicle control, what are the next stages up? Because as we spoke about earlier, Instructors are the ones that are most uh, are most well placed to deal with those higher order skills in the matrix because parents are just they're not going to be there. They're going to be much more focusing on can you physically drive this car? Um, can you actually do this thing that you're you're going to be assessed on? Whereas we know that it's those higher order skills about how you manage yourself in difficult situations. It's going to be much more important in terms of how they manage their safety going forwards. And it will be harder for for parents to potentially be in that space to be able to have those discussions unless they're supported in some way and and that might be really interesting to see how driving instructors might be able to to support parents to have those conversations or at least start those conversations off and how they could uh, be continued for for the reasons we already discussed of we do something for one hour we shouldn't expect it to then last forever because everything's happened in life so um i think it's a useful framework obviously i'm not a driving instructor but it would be interesting maybe to get a bit more awareness around it and sort of think how it can be operationalized i think that's key really for uh for, for people that are working with it practically it has to be operationalized i think from my perspective i was never taught it was never in my training in fact a lot of instructors have reached out to me and said it wasn't in their training but they've since discovered it and i found it was something that i did naturally anyway you know, mm -hmm. I think because I'm just quite an inquisitive person, you know, um, so I was having those conversations without realizing I was having those conversations, but it's not mandatory in, in our training. So I suppose I'm going to go back to my previous question and say, if I give you the magic wand, would you make it mandatory for driving instructors so that we could embrace that on every, not necessarily every lesson, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd have to go and have a good look at exactly what is included in the training because I'm, I'm afraid I'm not up to date with that. But I, I think it's important for instructors to understand some of the research orientated knowledge out there that can be translated into practice because that, that's where the real value is. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of making sure that when you do research, you actually use it and make things better as a result. And it seems like there might be a slight breakdown in terms of making sure some of those theories and techniques are applied into the training. So, yeah, I, 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 as I say, it's lasted for 20 years. We still refer to it. It's still a great model. And I, I think it's it's a good way to, as you say, start those conversations, even on a training level, but also thinking about where do you take things next for your students? Um, so, yeah, I think it should be. I want to ask you a little bit about the the conversations that we can have with a student so there's a lot of information out there that driving instructors can fall back on you know a lot of resources out there that we can utilize and, and give or at least discuss or talk to our students about but like a lot of the stats that are out there are quite scary you know the the, the one that always stuck in my head and, and really resonated was the you know the average of five people dying every day on on roads I think everyone's got one stat there that resonates from above everyone mm. else. And, and that does. It's like when I go to bed at night, that probably sounds really morbid, but I go to bed at night, I always seem to think, oh, five people have died today. 
you know, and I know it's an average, but it's it's quite a it resonated with me, but it's like, how do we get that across to our students? Because I know that, well, I mean, maybe you can explain this to me, because my understanding is that those kind of shock and awe techniques don't work anymore, do they? They're just <laughs> shouting, these many people die every day doesn't work. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. And it's it's been what my research has been focused on for the last six years is there's a lot of interventions out there for, for young drivers, kind of aside what you're, you guys are doing in, in, in driving instruction, but kind of going into schools and emergency services, talking about the consequences of collisions, their experience of collisions, the effect it's had on family members. And of course, that's going to have a massive emotive effect on anybody that sees that, because it, as you say, it's a, it's an awful stat. The human tragedy behind it is, is terrible. But I think where we kind of confuse the matter is we kind of think because it's so terrible it surely must make our behaviors different and unfortunately when you look at the research literature it it just doesn't support that and there's there's a number of reasons for it so when when you kind of have those emotive conversations it kind of takes our brains to a certain place so we're really highly aroused and actually they find that you're not able to process information in the same way when you're kind of really emotionally het up about something. If anybody's had been feeling emotional about something, you, they always say, don't make a decision at this point <laughs> because it, it's just the mechanisms aren't in place. So the problem is, is when you use fear and threat appeal, it takes people away and two things happen. Either people dissociate from the message because it's so awful and terrible, they, they can't process it anyway. And Actually, what we find a lot of young males do in particular is have what's called third person effects. So they'll say, well, this happens to other people. This does not happen to me. Uh, I'm fine. I'm a great driver. And therefore, they haven't taken any of the messages on board. I almost think, I mean, that's a, that's a really bad scenario. But also the other bad scenario is that um, this tends to happen to anxious young women is say, that is awful. My God, I'm never getting in a car. I do not want to learn to drive. And therefore, they don't have the, the benefits of all that mobility. So unfortunately, when we deliver that sort of thing, we think it's doing good, but actually it's not doing any good at all. It's not dealing with your risk takers and it's potentially putting people off driving. So what the research says is what we need to do is get somewhere in the middle. So of course, if they have loads of factual presentations it's really boring and dull and nobody takes that on board and nobody takes any attention so it can't be too arousing or too under arousing but something in the middle and kind of what the research is telling us is somewhere in the middle is kind of like positive reinforcement so kind of discussions um um social uh kind of um engagement amongst your peer group um, role playing uh question and answer sessions uh working out for yourself what what is applicable to you so okay this is an issue what am I likely to find difficult in my own life what particular journeys will I find it difficult to 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 actually do that I mean speeding is a great example because you know it's a really prevalent issue and there's loads of reasons why people do it some people do it because they're you know they want that exhilaration of speeding but a lot of people do it because they didn't mean to they weren't paying attention or they would they were in a hurry and it's kind of like, well, what situations are you going to find yourself having that problem in? What can you do in advance to guard against it? Or if you're in that moment, and what can you then do at that stage to remind yourself? So there's in research, they're called implementation intention, if then plan. So if I find myself speeding as I'm trying to get to work, then I need to stop and, and call ahead and say I'm going to be late. It's kind of making sure that there's those plans in the memory system that they can draw on. So that's kind of much more going to affect your behaviours than something that trying to scares you out of it. So um, 
So it's probably a long way round of answering. We understand a lot now from the literature and behavioural scientists would generally say don't go the fear and threat appeal route. There's some very small scale examples where actually it's okay, but in, in the main, it is just not effective and it can cause trauma as well. So let's, let's kind of go for the, the positive reinforcement capability and skills building route because young people are going to face risks in driving and in a whole area of, of life. They need to understand and have the skills and capabilities to speak up for themselves, to make decisions um, that are going to keep themselves safe. And that's kind of what we need to be working with them on. And just tying that in slightly, the things you've just discussed there is levels three and four of the, the GDE matrix. So, yes. you know, <laughs> um, but it is interesting, actually, because I'm going to use the example. And I get told off for using this example sometimes, but I'm going to use it because I'm a vegan and I only went vegan a few years ago. So for like 37 years of my life, I've just been like the biggest meat eater, big, biggest dairy eater. And no matter how many pictures of animals being slaughtered or tortured or whatever I saw, never put me off. And but I got a friend that went vegan and just through having conversations with them and just seeing how they did it, that is ultimately what made me go vegan. It was nothing to do with seeing these shock pictures. It was the the conversation I had with my friends. So when I, I compare the two, it's basically the, the same thing. Mm -hmm. the, the shocking picture I was just turned away from. Even now, if you know, if I happen to go on the, the cesspit that is Twitter or, or X and I see mm -hmm. something by pizza, I keep scrolling. But if I see something by, you know, a friendly vegan on how to cook this recipe, I'm, I'm looking at it. And I, I find mm -hmm. that, that that was more, a lot more um, helpful. Or, yes. Yeah, helpful to me. Well, I was going to say, I'm vegan as well, actually. All and right. uh, Oh, yeah, it wasn't the the nasty pictures that turned me either. It's it's, it's um individual for, for everybody, isn't it? About about that, but um yeah, it, it applies in all areas of, of of public health. I mean, smoking and the the lung damage, um, is the kind of one we all think of, isn't it? When you think of buying cigarettes and you can you can showing that 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 effect and you know for people that continue to smoke or people that continue to decide to eat meat or to have dairy they will explain away their choices that's kind of what we do as as humans and you know we on, on the vegan front it's still much more normal to eat meat than in this country than it than it isn't so you know you go people end up going on the side of well that's just because that's what everybody does and it, 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 the social norms are really important so yeah behavior change is complex isn't it <laughs> but we we what we do know is that the fear and threat appeal it is just doesn't generally work and it can, it can have damaging outcomes as well and for anyone listening stick about the end of the show for the bonus vegan content section that we're going to do um i do want to ask you about this actually because it, it it stuck its head on a previous episode in this season uh, season talking about the word use i'd just be interested if you had any thoughts on this at all of the use of the word accident or collision um what, what are your thoughts on the use of the word accident versus collision yeah no that's a, that's a really important subject and i i know that um the likes of of break and and road piece have kind of been spearheading this because it's incredibly important to to families that um the experiences that they've had with their um losing family members is not described as as an accident which it sounds kind of you know, spilling milk is an accident. It, that is, it's it's an avoidable, largely avoidable collision if something ha else had happened. And it it I, I can understand um, the perspective of uh, you know brief family members of of why accident is probably a pretty um, offensive term. So 
we've at the foundation we've we've supported that we make sure whenever we put out press releases or reports that we don't use the term accident we always use collision or crash instead because that is the accepted um wording that we use these days obviously you still have some government statistics so road accident statistics still come out of accident um i think there probably is a an interest in changing that over time but we obviously know that sometimes big data sets it takes a while to, to change that but there has been some interesting campaign work done around that you might have seen the media guidelines that were produced um by i'll, I'll look those out actually um, and send them to you so you can include those in, in the show notes if anybody's interested but um you know whenever the media report on on collisions they always say an accident happened and they often say an accident happened between a car and the there's also been a discussion about well shouldn't we be talking about a driver um so there's a person there's agency here not that there's a purpose you know decision to do something but we shouldn't be talking about vehicles when actually it's people that happen to be in a certain vehicle or or other so you know i think it's an important um discussion point yeah i agree i think it's uh i'm, I'm glad you brought that that next bit in as well because you're right we, we talk about cyclists we talk about horse and riders but we don't talk about drivers. We talk about cars, and I, I do. You know, I'm. I think I'm with you a little bit in that I, I would refer to it as a collision because I think it, it's too flippant. You know, and I wasn't even thinking of from the the family side. And you think about who the important people are after a, an RTC. It's um, it is the family, and I think that it, it is too flippant to call it an accident. And as much as we say those shock and awe tactics don't work, I don't think that's a shock and awe tactic. I think it's a you don't get away with it being an accident. If it is an accident, that's different, you know, but it's a, mm -hmm. it's a collision that someone has potentially caused or could have avoided. Yes. Yeah. It seems to trivialize it somewhat. And, you know, none of these events are trivial. They affect, as you say, the immediate family, the emergency services, but also broader communities are affected um, by this. So, yeah, I, I think it's right that we change the language around it. I want to move on a little bit now then and ask you specifically about co-pilot. Now, I think I've got a brief, a rough idea of what it is, but I'm just going to throw over to you and just talk to me about Copilot. What is it? Okay, so Copilot is a startup in the road safety education space. So this was founded by um, James Evans, who I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, started First Car and is most recently involved with the Honest um, Truth. So Copilot was born out of a of James's view that the existing kind of boom and bust of content creation is not really kind of fit for purpose. So traditionally, what we find is organisations or bodies will fund the development of some educational resources. They'll be deployed and then their value is sort of depreciated over time. So the funding from any one organisation is also often quite small and it's difficult to do, you know, really great things with a very, very small pot of money and also to evaluate them and design them correctly. So consequently, what we're trying to do at Copilot is foster more of a kind of sharing economy for the sector. So to ensure that they have continuous but also robust content, which is created through the sort of pooled subscription of our clients. So uh, Copilot was formed back in March so it's obviously still really early days for us but we're very lucky that we've got a really excellent set of early adopters so that's sort of local authorities training organizations quite a lot of people in the, in the road safety space as well as um, strategic partners that are working with us to develop our, our first tranche of content so this is including things like stock photos and, and videos that um, agencies can kind of use in their own publicity materials um, hazard perception training videos, and we're working with e situ to to put those in place. 
um, 52 weeks of social media content. So a lot of our clients have said, you know, often we have stuff, but what we'd like is more continuous um, messages that we could go out to the public. And so we've done our first tranche of those now, the first quarter. So that was about 16 different topics. And, you know, the in-depth kind of way we've gone into developing the intervention plans, looking at the research, what are the really key things we want to, to get across here. Um, and then the next things coming down the line is we wanting to produce some content that supports public understanding around vehicle technologies, which we talked about earlier, and um, particularly the point of sale. You go into buy your vehicle very often you don't get that a kind of a really comprehensive handover nobody often reads the manual so it's kind of what can we do to sort of support our clients to fill that space and also um people doing those checks on their own vehicles you know we always talk about the importance of 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 tires and you know their their wear and their pressure and their condition but in reality, lots of people don't even check them. They rely on an MOT or, you know, service once a year, which we know is not sufficient. They need to be checking them once a month. So it's providing those materials and content to support that process. So we're kind of like the intelligence inside the box. We are not a, we don't go straight to consumers. We kind of go to, you know, we're business to business. So we provide that content to our clients for them to then disseminate as they see so my particular role is I'm the um, behavioral science consultant there. There's only three of us at the moment. There's James, Simon's the CEO, and I'm kind of doing the um, consultant work. And, um, you know, what I aim to do is making sure we have really robust evidence-based rationale for what we do. And, you know, that involves developing those intervention plans grounded in sort of behavioral science and um, the research literature. Um, I, I guess you're probably interested in whether there's potential for instructors here. Um, so, as I say, we're we're early days, but there's certainly some content in there that we think would be interesting for instructors. We've talked about hazard perception. Well, these these hazard perception clips that could be really useful if you wanted to use those with your students. Um, there's also the um, the sort of social posts, and as you say, there could be more that instructors could do on that front. So. Yeah, we'd be really keen for instructors to make use of the resources once there's enough in there, I think, for instructors to make good use of, because as I say, we're still building that library at the moment. And I think we'd need to find a subscription method that kind of worked for the sector. Um, but yeah, I've no doubt that there'll be some really useful things in there for instructors, certainly over the next year. And I'll definitely have a good chat with James about it to see what we might be able to do there. Well. I mean, I've had a, a little nosy around it. I saw some of the social images that I think uh, you released recently. I like the look of them. The one in particular, I think it was like of a cyclist and half of the screen is light and half is it's mm -hmm. sort of when it's getting darker. I thought that was quite striking, actually. Um, yeah, so there, there's some good stuff there. I think my take on this is that it, it would probably actually be pretty good for driving schools, like multi-car schools. I don't mm -hmm. think in terms of a cost, it's probably viable for an independent instructor. But I think that multi-car schools will be it'll be worth looking into definitely. Mm -hmm. Um I am also gonna go my high horse for a second because I've preached about this before that there will be instructors that listen to this and there will be instructors, well definitely instructors that don't listen to this, that mm -hmm. take the approach of what difference can I make if I post this one thing on social media? Well, probably not an awful lot, but you might affect one person and that one person can save someone's life potentially. But what difference would forty thousand driving instructors make? quite a big difference in my opinion and you never know you might get lucky i had a post recently go viral about when someone throws a tantrum behind you when they're doing 20 miles an hour in a 20 zone that went viral unfortunately got hijacked by the um 
the speed limit change in Wales. I've got made into a discussion <laughs> about that. But I did have people message me and say, actually, I've not thought of it this way before. Thank you. You know, so those they can make a difference to road safety. And I think that as instructors, we need to do more. So um yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh to seeing the future of co-pilot and if there's anything i can do to assist with that you know feel free to let me know oh that's great thanks but that, that's interesting the point you made about kind of how do we use this stuff because you're right we we don't often lack informational resources in the sector but you know it can be difficult for instructors i imagine to know how to use it how to sift through what's out there what's best and you know given the the limited time they have with students what's best to use i guess what i'd say from a behavioral perspective is one of the first things to say is information alone has not been linked to behavior change. So I often think of information as being that like important prerequisite to a valuable conversation. We all need background information to inform our attitudes and opinions, but information on its own is not going to cut it. And I think some of the things we've discussed today actually kind of kind of proves that case in a bit, doesn't it? So I'd say that instructors are probably really well placed to take some of the information and turn that into some active learning discussion. So this could be Q&As, test knowledge, um, talking about hypothetical scenarios, problem solving exercises, encouraging some sort of reflection on the students as well. So I think it's important that the students can then take the information provided and think about how does it apply to them. And we've kind of talked about those developing those plans and kind of what's relevant. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's important to make use of the best information out there. And, and turn it into a valuable learning experience and um, instructors are, are you know really well placed to do that and just to put a little bit more personal evidence behind that as well um when i put the post up for this podcast or any podcast and i say this podcast has to obviously get some traction and it gets a little mm-hmm. bit of maybe a couple of people comment a couple of people like a couple of people share in a year's time when I reflect, do a post reflecting back on this podcast and talk about the influence this podcast had, that gets a lot more traction because mm-hmm. I'm talking about how it changed me or the difference it made to me and how I made on this. So when people can see that personal experience as opposed mm-hmm. to just saying, come and listen to this thing or do this thing, you put the personal side in it. I think it yes. has a lot more, a lot more impact. Um, yeah, and, and I think on that point that it's like we were talking about the effect of fear and threat appeals earlier and how that doesn't tend to work. But the kind of the good parts of that is the personal element. So it's, and and I think a lot of teachers have come back with the stuff that I've delivered and kind of gone, it, we kind of feel like we're sometimes we're missing that personal element and that's great. We can still have those personal experiences, but they don't have to be death consequences. They can be other experiences that people have had that actually much more day to day that people are much more likely to relate to and experience and will probably experience themselves next week and how you can bring that into the discussion I think is really important because as you say we all relate as people don't we and rather than to facts we want to relate to stories um, and that's important. Is there anything else you want to touch on today? I think we've covered a huge amount of ground in, in our discussion it's been it's been really really good I, I would say the thing that I haven't probably touched on which might be worth making your listeners aware of is that they might like to have a look at those sort of freely available resources that I created as part of my PhD research on on dry fit which are now available on the race safety GB website and I'll make sure that you've kind of got a link to that and so what's on there is films but there's also kind of workbooks that kind of look at those implementation intentions like it's really helpful to give students sheets to say relate to you and here's some examples so that they can sort of pull rather than making them completely up themselves they've got something to pull from so that might be relevant for some of the discussions 
I'm also really delighted that the Dry Fit programme has recently um, been awarded a Prince Michael International Road Safety Award uh, for, for the work, which is fantastic because it kind of helps to raise the profile of the programme, show that the resource is there. And it's been really great to have some international interest in that as well since. So that that's really good. Um, I've also got a report coming out um, which will be published by the RAC Foundation, which will be freely available on our website. So that'll be coming out mid-November and it's called Empowering Young J- Drivers with Road Safety Education. So what I've been trying to do there is distill my research from the last six years into an accessible 60-page document, not a 500-page one <laughs> for my thesis, um, to really pull out kind of what the evidence is telling us about uh, fear and threat appeals, kind of what the alternatives look like, where we should be really focusing our conversations for for young and novice drivers and for intervention designers, which is obviously slightly separate to what you guys are doing in instruction, but those that are going into schools, kind of what they should be looking at to include in their interventions and sort of the tick list of things they should include. So um, I'm going to be speaking at the National Road Safety Conference, the Road Safety GB1 mid-November about that. Um, So it'll be published around that sort of time. So that's also um, available for people to have a look at. Loads of stuff, which is which is always good. Um, all right, so I'm going to finish up asking you the question that I'm asking everyone that comes on the podcast this year. Uh, what personal or professional development are you currently undertaking or do you regularly undertake? Okay, so I've been just completed six years of, of PhD study. So I'd say I'm probably on a, a little bit of a, <laughs> a break on, on the yeah. CPD um, front. But actually... I would describe myself as a, a lifelong learner. I think I'd have to be really to, to do the PhD at um, sort of later stage in life like I have done. But so what I still do now is I regularly listen to podcasts and I regularly listen to audiobooks because I find that's a really good way to get learning into everyday life. You know, you're going out for a walk at lunchtime to stretch your legs. It's really great to be able to listen to podcasts. So, um, you know, one of my favourite uh, podcast to listen to at the moment is um the diary of the ceo the Stephen bartlett's one because i find that he has some great speakers from sort of professional and personal development perspectives there so that's really great and one of the books i've listened to um recently and i'd say um one that's kind of really stuck mi- with me which people might find interesting is one called rebel ideas by matthew syed which was um, all about the importance of ensuring that we're not just listening to ourselves and people like us, but incorporating diverse perspectives and decisions we make, and that we're not just working in echo chambers around us. And, you know, I think in the digital age, it's so easy just to talk to people like yourself, and it's really important to kind of broaden that perspective. And they've got some really great kind of case studies in there about, um, you know, when it's worked and when it hasn't and what the consequences have been so uh, that that was quite an interesting um book i thought and when you say the diary of a ceo is the best podcast i'm presuming second best oh yeah. of course second yes, best. There we go. <laughs> um, actually I've, I've just listened to his new book i think it's 33 life lessons that was really good that was really interesting as well um Okay, so what question could would you want to ask driving instructors? I'm going to put this up in Spotify, so driving instructors that listen over there can answer directly on Spotify. But what question do you have for driving instructors? So I think my question to driving instructors, and I'm not completely sure how you'd word this at the moment, but what I'd be interested to know based on the research and all that we've talked about is how much pressure are they getting from students to pass quickly? Because we know the importance of being able to get all of that experience under you about the experience in different conditions and different weathers. And I just wonder how hard that is for instructors to push back against, whether it's the student or the parent kind of wanting to pass in the next six weeks. And um, so if you could find a great way of uh, 
writing that up as a question, I'd be really interested to to kind of see what pressures they're under, because then to me that indicates that it's more important that we get um, legislation change and changes to the licensing that can support driving instructors to get their students to be doing the practice that they need. It's all very well us saying, well, this is best practice, let's try and promote it. But if there's so much pressure, it's really hard for people to deliver. So I'd like to understand the pressures they're under. Um, that would be great. I think the way you phrased it initially was perfect. And, and just my take on that is I find him more often the pressure is coming from the pupil's parents, not the pupil. Mm-hmm. The pupil's happy whether they're paying or the parents are paying. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant. They're happy just to come along and learn. They're actually often really keen to drive safe. I had a, a question recently, which was, if there was no driving test, what would I do as a job? I'm like, 99% of my students would still want lessons because they don't care about the test. I've actually got mm. a really good core group of students. It's the parents I often find mm-hmm. that are the issue. But but I, I will put that up and I will uh, relay the results to you. Great, thank you. Um, do you want to just tell, remind people where they can find you if they want to find any more about you or the RSC Foundation? Yeah, so, I mean, if anybody wants to reach out, you can contact me at the RAC Foundation. So if you go onto the website, uh, or contact us, my email address is there. So please feel free to get in touch. Um, I also offer behavioural science and research services through my own consultancy, which is ECM Research Solutions. So people are welcome to get in touch that route as well. I'm also reasonably active on LinkedIn. So if anybody wanted to connect there, you know, it'd be great to be in touch. Awesome. All that stuff will be in the show notes. Last final question, but possibly the most important question of the day. Have you tried Tesco's vegan jalapeno burgers? <laughs> no, but that sounds like a great recommendation. Thank you. Always looking for them. The best burger I've ever had includes prior to being vegan. But um, no, thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Terry. So big thank you to Liz Boxer. Really interesting episode. Really enjoyed hearing a talk about the the importance of coaching for instructors and those conversations and looking at post-test driving and the GDM matrix and, and all that kind of stuff, the stuff that that sometimes we overlook as instructors. So I think it was fascinating getting all sort of the outside perspective on that. As I mentioned, all the links to everything for, for all this stuff is in the show notes or on the website, theinstructorpodcast.com. You can check out the blog over there. Now, in a minute, I've got the bonus content for you that I mentioned with Lee Jowett, where we recorded the episode of the GDE Matrix. Just before we get stuck into that, I want to tell you about something that's upcoming next year for the Instructor Podcast, which is Driving Instructors for Road Safety. So at the minute, I'm working behind the scenes on developing some more content for instructors, how we can utilize some of this road safety content that's out there utilize it in our social media, utilize it in lessons, how better to translate all this information that's available and actually use it rather than just being there and not necessarily knowing how to use it. So there is stuff going on in the background. Make sure you're keeping your eye out for, for driving instructors for road safety. But as I mentioned, we've got this bonus piece of content for your nice little treat with Lee Jowett talking about the GDA matrix. If you enjoy this and you want any more of the Instructor Podcast premium content, head over to www.theinstructorpodcast.com. Over there, you can find more details. You can find links to sign up and you can sign up for as little as £10 a month or take advantage of a week's free trial. Alternatively, if you've got any specific questions and you can find me on Facebook, on social media, or again, go to the website, www.theinstructorpodcast.com and you can find loads of links over there. So thank you guys for listening. I really do appreciate it. And remember, let's just keep raising standards. 
to welcome to this first edition of Enter the Matrix. Um, and, and I've been excited about doing this for ages, just so that I can do all the Matrix fonts and make Keanu Reeves reference and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yes, Enter the Matrix, so we're going to be discussing all things GDE Matrix, which is the Goals for Driver Education. And I'm delighted to be joined by Lee Jowett today. How are we doing, Lee? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Does that make me Keanu Reeves? No. No, oh. I am Keanu Reeves on this. Oh. Uh, you may be Lawrence Fishburne. I like Lawrence Fishburne. I'll be him. I'm happy to be him. There you go. Um, but I, I kind of I want to mention before we start, actually, that I wanted you on episode one of this because I've listened to people and read stuff and, and spoke to people about the, the GDE matrix before, and you are always a person that makes the most sense to me on this specific topic. Uh, so I definitely wanted you on this first one because I'm hoping that if it makes sense to me, it'll make sense to everyone. So yeah. I will do my best. <laughs> Great. Um, but before we start, I want to share my little background around this if, if i if i can and i'll be interested in potentially in your thoughts and if it's something mm. that you maybe see quite a lot of because when i took my training which was sort of six seven years ago now um there was or i can't remember anything being mentioned about this at all um no i i cannot i'm racking my brains i cannot remember it being mentioned at all so obviously it wasn't gone through in depth uh, even if it was mentioned mm. but i think i've always not used it, but use the principles behind it. And the reason for that is, is going back to my driving test all mm. those many moons ago, because I was not ready for a test in that I could control a car and I could navigate traffic. You know, so if we're talking levels one and two, which we'll, we'll come on so I could do that. But was I mentally prepared for a driving test? Mm. No, not a chance. Mm. After I passed my test, was I ready? No idea. I was scared as a driver and I wasn't ready for some of the stuff that I came across. But the thing at the time that always struck me was, and thinking back, sorry, was people would tell me that you learn to drive once you've mm. passed your test. So I always assumed that's just what the case was. But, but when I became an instructor, I really came in with this attitude of, I do not want other drivers to go through that. I do mm. not want my learners to deal with what I dealt with i want them to be able to to plan a route to be able to work out where they're going and look at the timings of it is it going to be a rush hour when can i plan my stops you know well i need to stop after two hours to, to think about how they're going to feel when they've got people in their car because i'll tell you what i want ready for the first time i had three people in my car especially at the time my ex's sister who was a fucking nuisance and one shut up so i was not ready for that but i wanted my students ready for that I probably haven't always been as successful with that as I wanted because I'm learning and getting better myself, but I've always had those conversations. So I think I've kind of been embracing this anyway without realizing it was there. Mm. And I think it was last year or maybe the year before where I heard it mentioned, it was probably on a podcast episode, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I've no idea what it is. Best go find out. So mm -hmm. I've done it, looked at it, and it was like, I think I'm kind of doing this anyway, so right, put it to the side because no one ever mentioned it, so it can't be all important. Mm. And then a few months ago, I started getting people requesting me to do shows, and I'm like, I best look into this. So I've kind of been just digging a bit more around it, looking a bit more into the background, looking at specifically what it is. And I think mm. I'm pretty good with it now. I'm pretty familiar, probably still not where I want to be. But that's where I am 
with that. So I'd just be interested in, in your reflections. Like, I think that's something you quite hear quite commonly about the training and that side of stuff. Uh, yeah, in terms of training, um, there are not a lot of people that, you know, given that uh, me and my business partner, Mick, go up and down the country um, delivering um, standards check and client-centered learning workshops, which really are heavily influenced by the GDE matrix. Uh, it's the starting point. Um it's the purpose of client-centered learning. Um, and so it heavily revolves around uh, the GDE and particularly the higher levels that need to be addressed. Um, we don't see a lot of people, um, you know, I think we see, <laughs> just quantify it, we see a lot of people, but we don't see a lot of people that um, are familiar with the GDE matrix um, or certainly that like understand it to anything like a, a workable, um level um so that would be my overall experience of it i first came across the gd matrix in about 2011 um and yeah i think personally it took me i couldn't even tell you at what point i started to sort of um understand it to the extent that i didn't have to be looking at it reading it um and repeating it um you know you talked about and it's uh, i always find it interesting teaching and learning i find just fascinating um but you're talking about um sort of learning to drive and your experiences of passing your test and um i always think that where typically and traditionally we went wrong is that we were happy for people just to be doing what we were telling them to do and I think what you're talking about is, you know, if you look at Bloom's taxonomy of learning, it's going from the lowest level of learning, which is just to repeat what you're told into the higher levels, which is to understand it um, as, a, as a whole thing, and then to understand it and then be able to apply that for yourself individually. But then beyond that, is to be able to break it down and analyze it, evaluate it, and use everything that you've learned around something to be able to create new um, knowledge for yourself, which I think is about hopefully where I am with the GDE matrix now. Whereas when I go back, um, but we were putting people on the road, I think is is the point. We were putting people on the road when they were really just at a, a point in driving where all they had was the ability to repeat what they've been told to do by a driving instructor, but not really the, because the analysis remedy and feedback always came from the instructor. So all of that we had to figure out for ourselves. And then you've got everything else, like the higher levels of the G level four, everything about that person and who they are and what motivates them, what influences them, their own emotional states, etc and how that impacts on their driving. And then you've got beyond that and lower than that, um, the third level you talked about having passengers in your car, that changes the context of that particular journey, and that impacts on the person. And then it all feeds its way down into the lower two levels. So um, I think that's that's it. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating for me. Again, going back to, to my test and my learning side of it, I think the good example or a good example would be sort of motorway driving, if you like, because I I had one hour lessons. So I had no experience in knowing what it was dry, like to 
take a journey three or four hours long being in the driver's seat mm. i can remember doing a motorway lesson it was part of my pass plus and i think that was a two-hour lesson but only 45 minutes it was on the motorway mm. so i might have had the skills to get up to 70 and maintain mm. a car at 70 and you know change lanes or whatever but i had no experience in in managing fatigue of driving yeah. and and you know all whatever else you know comes up in that situation and and is is that kind of thing you're talking about that idea of you know we'll teach you to do the bare minimum you know we're gonna steal a chris benson phrase again minimum standards you know we'll teach you to do the the bare minimum but you're now gonna go and take that and learn to drive by yourself with all these other external factors yeah um and it is because you're absolutely right it's external factors internal factors external factors you know external from what we were taught what we were um motorway lessons i would probably suggest were um really focused on controlling the vehicle at speed um uh controlling the braking at speed ms psl routines and how they're impacted at higher speeds um navigating on those types of carriageways, um, risk increasing factors like following distances, uh, like uh, looking and not seeing, like reduced visibility, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, how to evaluate those or being given the evaluation of those from a driving instructor. And that's all well and good because rationally speaking, if we were being programmed, as robots at work but what about when someone cuts me up and i get angry how does that impact on me driving what about the fact that i very um uh, personally i have very very um <clears throat> low levels of concentration i just drift off uh, i really struggle with um the monotony of motorway driving I've had to learn myself what works for me and what doesn't. What really doesn't work for me really is anything motorway-wise over an hour doesn't work for me. I mean, I'll have to do it sometimes, but it, it really doesn't work. Um, in April, we um, we were in Kempton um, delivering for the ADI and JC at, uh, at their expo. Mick drove down in the morning in one go. I had to go. I had to go in the evening and and break it into two because I'm sorry that just won't work for me. Uh, it just wouldn't be safe for me. So, but there are things that um, that I've had to figure out for myself. And I mean, there are things that I would have had to have worked out for myself anyway because somebody can't give you the coping strategies for yourself. You have to find them yourself. But nobody raised my awareness of that. Nobody included any of that in my training, and um, yeah, it's an it's a crucial part. The lower two levels of the GDE controlling a vehicle and driving it on the road, whilst they contribute to collisions, they're very, very, very rarely the key contributory factor in people having collisions. So, um, you know, <laughs> experienced drivers basically don't have. Um, don't have collisions due to a lack of knowledge or skill um we're going to come back to that in a minute so i want to uh throw a bit more of this out there first because i put a poll up on my facebook page the other day and it, it asked 
you know, do you have full knowledge on the understanding of the GDE matrix? And 38% of people voted either they'd never heard of it mm. or they've heard of it, but they've no idea what it is. Mm. So that's over a third. I'm trying to do maths, mm. probably two fifths um, of, well, not the necessary industry because not 44,000 people voted, but it's, it was a good sample size. Does that surprise you that that many people have never heard of it? Uh, no, the opposite. My experience is more that around 90% of the people that we see have either never heard of it or just don't know anything really much about it. So I would say those figures may be more representative of the smaller audience. Um, the fact that the people that you attract to your podcast are the types of people that probably would be interested. Um, whereas a lot of people that attend our courses is for the specific pur purpose that I've got a standard check coming up or uh, PDIs who have got part threes coming up. And I don't think either party can be blamed, but if you've got a part three coming up and your trainer's not been through the GDE matrix, you can hardly blame a PDI. Um, on the same token, I wouldn't necessarily blame ADIs because um, I missed that batch of emails that, were about the GDE matrix all the way back in, you know, in 2011 when the standards came in. Um, and I wasn't a driving instructor in 1999, but uh, my, my knowledge is that um, nobody was really made aware of a lot of the research that went into formulating the GDE matrix. So um, I don't blame instructors. I don't blame PDIs, um, but it is, it's a sad indictment. Um, and just to go back to what you said earlier, and this isn't a criticism of you at all in any way, but I would implore people who don't have a thorough knowledge of the GDE matrix to not look at it and think, well, it's just what I've always done. Because I promise you, it won't be. There will be elements of it that you will address. But the very nature of the fact that when you understand it and how we're supposed to use it, that everything's supposed to revolve around the person. This is where client-centered learning fits in, that it's the person that controls what happens on that journey and what happens in that traffic situation and how they control the vehicle. And that is a, it's a flip because then we're not necessarily trying to teach them how not to stall. We're trying to help them understand why they stalled so that they can then, um, you know, get in there when their emotions take over and then they're not controlled by their emotions. They control themselves. Um, and that in turn then controls the emotion for them. I mean, you may not have been critical, but I was being critical when I said it because that, that was what I did at the time. I, I looked at it, I took one glance and I was just dismissed it immediately thinking, mm. well, well, twofold one in the, I'm, that's what I'm doing anyway. Which, as you said, there were elements of that that was incorporating. I was trying to do it, even if not doing it to that standard. But also, no one else is talking about this, so it can't be important. Yes. But that's that was wrong from me. You know, this is me taking responsibility. I should have looked at it and gone, well, hold on, why is no one talking about this? Let me find out what this is. I, I could have brought this into the podcast two years ago. It doesn't have to wait till for people to start requesting it. Do you know what I mean? So it is a bit of, don't get me wrong, I'm not kicking myself in for it, but 
it's understandable, but it's, mm. it is, that was a, a poor choice on my part, if you like. And it was a, what a lot of people did as uh, we can't, when mindset learning was introduced. Mm. Oh, that's what I do anyway. Yeah. That it was, there was almost three responses. One that there was, that's what I do anyway. What's this newfangled nonsense? Mm. And then the third one, which is, Oh, what's this? I'm going to go learn. Mm. And I think the majority yeah. of people, unfortunately, took the first two options. But um, just coming back to that poll for a second, because I, I think it's relevant yeah. that I say this. In the, I'm, we we touched on this before we started recording. Actually, that I, I think when I put that poll up, I thought, which one would I vote for? And I mm. was thinking I'd vote for full knowledge and full understanding. And then when I stepped back, I thought, well, I couldn't explain this to a five-year-old. Like you mentioned before about the the hierarchy of learning, where can you break it down mm. and explain it, or can you break mm. it down and create something new? No, mm. that's kind of what I'm doing with this podcast, actually, but with help. Um, but I, I don't think I could. So I'm not quite to that that level yet. I think I've got a good understanding of it, but I want to I want to get better. Mm. So I'm, I'm, where would you? say you were in that you said before that you think you're at that point of being able to break it down create something new and i suppose that's what you're doing in your workshops is that right yes yes when when um when i wrote the the workshop it um doing that really helped me to understand things a lot more um when yeah when you when you're using something that you know breaking it down applying it to other other things that you know seeing where it fits in and then creating something new out of all of that. Yeah. That really does help with, uh, the depth of your knowledge. Um, that being said, I, um, I'm just laughing cause I voted on that and I, I voted, uh, for as well. Now, when you put it the way you put it, I, I think I could explain it to a five-year-old, but still, I think it's a little bit of a poor choice. Maybe it's a poor choice of, uh, of option. Um, because <laughs> maybe there needed to be a, a a third option with that one. No, another fourth option with that one being the fifth option. Um, <laughs> you're kicking uh, You criticise me about this. You criticise <laughs> me about this. Yeah, Paul's rubbish. Um, <laughs> no, um, I just feel like yeah, like like when you explain it the way you did, uh, and when I thought about it, I thought well. It, I will. I will know more about it. I don't know it fully. That's wrong. I actually don't know it fully, um, because all the time I learn more and more about it, and I'll, I'll sort of even just things like competencies and where competencies fit within levels and where they can fit and how you can use them, and and so you learn more and more and more all the time. So I'd, I'd want to change um, my vote to maybe maybe the third one. Well, I accidentally deleted the poll, so you can't change oh. it now. But um, it's, it's, do you know what? It's interesting. It's scaling, isn't it? And that's my scale, and everyone mm. else has to fit into that scale. But I suppose mm. that's what a poll is. But I, I suppose it's probably relevant now that we actually kind of talk about <laughs> the matrix and explain what it is. Um, mm. I, actually, do you know what? Before we even do that, I'm going to say, because you mentioned one thing earlier about, um, you know, being... 10 20 years old you know this has been around for a long time so when we see these comments about newfangled ideas yeah it's not a newfangled idea it's been around for decades mm. it's just that people haven't been using it 
And then we get the argument, yeah, well, why change what is not broken? Like, yes, but five people die every day on UK roads. Yeah. It is broken. The Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook. Talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. So because you're a super duper listener that's listened all the way to the end, all the way through the show, past the closing music and all that kind of fun stuff, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Well, it's not that much of a secret. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because it's amusing. Did you know that in my driving test, I got in the wrong car? Yes, that's a true story. Did you also know that on my first ever part three, I introduced myself to the examiner as Julie? Yes, that's also a true story.